folks, Dr. Travis McMacken here. Welcome or welcome back, as the case may be. Thank you for choosing to spend a bit of your day with me. I hope that I can at least help you to think some interesting thoughts. I'll be back with you in a moment after the music ends. We're Bible shaming now, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got some Book of Confessions copies that uh, can float around here if anybody needs them. We got some Bibles on the other side. Uh, I, I brought five printed copies of the Scots Confession. It looks like some folks got a hold of those. So hopefully we are all well equipped. Greg downloaded the uh, most recent Book of Confessions from the PCUSA website and bemoaned the complete lack of design that went into its production. <laughs> but it's really the words that matter, right? We're Presbyterians. So uh, we're continuing on today in our discussion of the history and theology of the Scots Confession. Uh, we managed to get through all the planned stuff last week. We'll see if we can get a roll going and do it two weeks in a row. Uh, we'll find out. But today, I want to dive into the history portion by giving a little background on the Reformation uh, in general. And then as we get into next week, we'll start getting more specifically into the background of the Scots um, Reformation. But uh, to begin, we should talk about Catholicism in the late Middle Ages. And uh, whenever I talk about this, I always begin with the caveat that Catholicism in the late Middle Ages was very, 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 very different than Catholicism today. A lot has happened in the intervening 500 years, as you might imagine. Um, and most of us, when we think of Catholicism in the late Middle Ages anyway, we think of what's called Tridentine Catholicism. It's the form of Catholicism that came out of the Council of Trent, which is actually um, a counter, we, Protestants call it counter-reformation, Catholics call it a reformation council, uh, it concluded in the 1560s, so right about the same time that the Scots Confession is being produced, but it was the response of the Catholic Church to what had been going on. And it did a lot to standardize Catholicism across Europe in ways that it had never been standardized before. Uh, and the basic idea was, if we keep allowing all of this different variation in different places, then it's going to be hard to hold it all together. We're just going to keep getting more splintering offs, right? So let's standardize it, let's centralize it, and so on. But that's our mental image of it, of Catholicism in that period, when really that comes after the fact. Prior to, it was very diverse, uh, depending on where you were. Uh, lots of different practices, lots of different priorities, uh, and different feel. So uh, we have to kind of bear in mind that even our stereotypical perception of what late medieval Catholicism was is not temporally correct. It's coming later. And then even since Trident, uh, the Council of Trent, you've got two really major councils. You've got the first Vatican Council at the end of the 1800s, and then you've got the second Vatican Council in the 20th century, 20, uh, 1960s. 60s? Not, I always want to say it's 70s, but I think it's 60s. And so, especially the Second Council of Trent was a major overhaul. 
kind of along the same order uh, as the Tridentine Council, the Council of Trent, but it moved back in the other direction toward less standardization in some ways, less centralizing, uh, and more um, particular local character. So for instance, after the Second Vatican Council, uh, you have your church services in the Catholic Church in the language that people actually speak in a given place, rather than all in Latin, which by the way was something the Council of Trent made the official policy. Right? So uh, Catholicism, like Protestantism, has changed a lot uh, since the period of the Reformation, so we have to try to get behind those stereotypes uh, in our minds as we think about what it looked like in the late Middle Ages. So, um, the status quo for that period, uh, the Roman Catholic um, clergy and institutions played a huge role in society. And if you even take a few steps back in time to when the Roman Empire in the West kind of disintegrated in the 6th, 7th, 8th centuries uh, CE, the church was really the only institution left standing that had any kind of reach outside of the intensely local, right? You might have a, your village or your town, and you might have your local warlord or king or whatever they're calling themselves, but go too many miles in any direction, and you're going to be in a completely different situation. And people didn't go too many miles in general in any given direction, unless you were a soldier, maybe a merchant to some limited extent, but there wasn't a ton of trade either, right? So you've got this intensely local world, and the church is really the only thing that can bridge those boundaries with any kind of effectiveness. So it's the only, in that sense, international institution or even national institution that you've got. And understandably, that played a big role. They just accumulated a lot of influence from being able to speak across those lines. So um, they provided a lot of stability and unity in that context uh, where there was none otherwise. Uh, no political unity. Remember, like France and Germany and Italy as we know it today did not exist. They were not single unified identities, just a lot of different fractions of states. Um, they also maintained learning, right? All the monks in the monasteries copying down the ancient texts, uh, continuing to learn to read and to write. And given that kind of uh, social location and the lack of competitors, it should be no surprise that eventually uh, the institutions gained a lot of political and economic influence, right? Accumulated a lot of wealth that they could use in different ways. <coughs> now, uh, and once you have an institution with a lot of wealth and power, what happens next? Corruption and misuse of power, right? Just inevitably, it doesn't matter who you are. So um, there's a lot of that that begins to develop as well. And everybody knows it. It's not a secret. And so in the Catholic Church, as you move through the Middle Ages, you have a number of different kinds of reforming movements that happen to try to address these. Some of those reforming movements come from certain popes. Some of those reforming movements come from different groups of monasteries, with monks and nuns getting together and saying, we need to do things differently, right? So there's a lot of this uh, constant energy trying to make things better, but then there's a lot of you know, inertia where things want to keep going the way that they're going. So these reforming movements were more or less uh, successful. But by the late Middle Ages, and here we're talking the 14th and 15th centuries, it's 1300s and 1400s, right up to the beginning of the Reformation period, you've got it really hardening into some of the bad habits. 
the reforming movements are being more and more effectively suppressed by those who hold the power in the institution, and um, the corruption is getting worse as far as the reforming movements are concerned. And another few uh, things happened to make the situation worse. So uh, the first was the Black Death. Uh, have we all heard of the bubonic plague and how it swept through Europe in the 14th century? This, this is the plague with the rats, right? That they think was spread by rats. Um, does anybody know approximately how, what percentage of the population died during that five-year event? Traditional estimates say about 50%, 30 to 50%. Some more recent estimates based on um, some different methods of estimating mortality rates um, suggest that it was higher among the common population, right? That the, the nobility who leave better records skew the results in favor of a lower mortality rate because they could leave the area, whereas most people could not. So you've got lots and lots and lots of people dying and that, understandably, brings your society to a halt. Now, if you're a good priest, a good monk, a good nun, and the plague hits your area, what are you likely to do? Hmm? A lot of funerals. A lot of funerals, home visits. <laughs> Taking care of the people, right? You're going to be with them as they go through this horrible uh, event in their soon-to-be-over lives. Uh, and then, if you are doing that, what's going to happen to you? <laughs> You're going to get it too, right? And you are also going to die. So uh, all of, well, not all of, but many of the best among the clergy are perishing along with the people that they're trying to care for. And you had situations shortly after the Black Death, that kind of, the worst of it burned itself out in three to five years. But after that, you've got whole regions where there aren't really any clergy left. They've all just died. Um, and think about what that means for a human resources department, right? You need bodies there to run the institution, to perform the sacraments, right? To marry them and bury them and all that. And you got to get people there now. Well, where are you going to get them? Half the population just died, right? You're not looking at a long list of qualified candidates, put it that way, right? You're going to get whatever warm body you can get and your uh, qualification standards are going to get a little fast and loose, <laughs> right? And this is what happened. So you have this influx uh, into the clergy of people who did not meet previous qualification standards. This is why when you get to the reformers, they're talking about how uneducated the clergy are. Because they went through a human resources crisis a century before, right? So that did not help the situation. It was a, a challenge. Uh, for the organization. Also, um, the Great Schism. Have we heard of the Great Schism? Yeah. This is when there were two popes for a long time and then three for a little while, right? So into a situation where you already have an institution struggling to survive after losing a bunch of its best personnel, you've got a French pope elected who moves from Rome to Avignon, right? It's in France today, but then it was right on the border. Uh, so he could be protected by the French king from all the powerful people in Rome and stayed there for 70-some years. And this had a lot of economic consequences because as long as the pope was in Rome, the pope had lots of lands around Rome that they could take um, 
support from so they could pay their bills. But having moved to Avignon, he couldn't effectively collect that support and had to raise money in other ways by doing things like, okay, you want to be an archbishop. Well, it's going to cost you. Or, hey, I've got this archbishop over here uh, that I need to replace. Uh, who wants to bid? Right? Or um, you've got selling indulgences, which is a key factor in the Reformation story with Martin Luther. Uh, hopefully we'll get to. I'm going to need to speed up. Um, but the idea with indulgence is that there's certain penalties that our bodies have to undergo for sin. And if we don't get them in this life, we get them in purgatory before heading to heaven. But the Pope, in theory, can let you off the hook for that, and that's what the indulgence does. It gets you out of purgatory faster. So you can sell these, right? So for a donation, you'll spend less time in purgatory, basically. So they got all of these kind of creative revenue streams up and running uh, when the Pope was in Avignon. And then, uh, when you have two Popes, you need twice the revenue. When you got three, <laughs> you need three times the revenue. And um, this, in an institution where the whole idea was that you've got this single figure that holds it all together, and that's kind of fallen apart, right? It makes it hard for the institution to function effectively. And that's what we had for a century during the Great Schism until finally a series of councils, and then finally at least one of the people calling themselves Pope dying off, uh, they got it whittled back down to one. Where were the other one was in Rome, and then I think the other one, oh, I can't remember where the third one was. There weren't three for long. It was only a few years, but, but Rome and Avignon were the main places. No, no, they had, that break happened in the um, 10, uh, 11th century, 1054, is when the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Constantinople excommunicated each other. So they were kind of doing their own thing. So all of that's the background so that when the reformers came along, it wasn't even really the best version of the medieval church that they had to make complaints about. It was a very um, challenged institution uh, that other people had for a long time been saying, we need to do something to improve this situation. We need to make some changes. We need to reform. So uh, a couple instances of attempts at reform. Uh, how many of us know Francis of Assisi? St. Francis, uh, he's the guy who you might know somebody with a statue in their backyard with a guy in a robe with a bunch of animals around. Uh, that's St. Francis, he preached to the animals. Um, the whole thing with St. Francis was vows of poverty, right? You took vows of poverty to become a Franciscan and uh, you would not hold any personal property and additionally, the order would not hold property. Some orders got around this by saying the, the individual monks don't own property but the order does, and so we've got all of these lands and so on. Uh, but they didn't, Francis didn't want any property. And you survived by begging. Uh, you go from town to town preaching and eating whatever people gave you and surviving that way. And this was a direct criticism of how lots of the bishops and the archbishops and the cardinals and the pope was living. They were living like royalty. And here comes Francis and the Franciscans saying, no, this is actually more like how Jesus lived. So let's do this, right? And as you can imagine, the powers that be weren't too happy about it. And over a period of decades, did everything they could to undermine the Franciscans, um, outlawing the way the vow of poverty worked, 
Um, and when some other Franciscans broke away because they didn't like that, they called themselves the spiritual Franciscans, um, they ended up actually using the Inquisition to suppress them. So um, again, attempts at reform, but not getting very far. Another one is John Wycliffe. We heard of John Wycliffe, all right, English uh, thinker. He was a philosopher and theologian who taught at Oxford. He thought that the uh, hierarchy had too much power over the church and that they needed to get rid of all of these traditional things that they had come to practice and believe and instead get back to basing all of their belief and practice on scripture. Also thought that the average person should have access to it. Um, up until uh, much later, really Vatican II, your average Catholic wasn't supposed to read the Bible. Only the clergy, right? So Wycliffe's saying, no, everybody should read it and that's what we should be basing everything on. Uh, he even worked on the first translation of the Bible into English. And so you've got translation societies named after him still today. He ended up dying of natural causes, but later on when the political tides shifted, they dug him up and burned what was left, as you do. Jan Hus was not so lucky. Uh, if you've encountered Hussites, this is where they come from, Jan Hus. Uh, and this is all late 14th, early 15th century. He was a priest and professor in Prague who was influenced by Wycliffe. Uh, same sort of uh, positions that he staked out. But in particular, he argued that the laity, the average people in the, well, we can't say people in the pews because they didn't have pews. They all just stood. Uh, but the average people on the receiving end of church um, should disobey the clergy if they tell them to do something immoral or illegal which was a huge affront uh, to the hierarchy who wanted to view themselves as uh, the supreme authority even above your nation and its laws, right? So he said immoral and illegal, right? So uh, he's kind of elevating the, the political authority with respect to the spiritual authority. Well, they did not like this. Uh, they burned him at the stake in 1415, uh, but his influence was in such that um, immediately in Bohemia, where he was from, a uh, rebellion broke out that lasted two decades. So uh, again, an attempt at reform, a certain amount of popular support, but finally being, you know, squashed or burned in this case. There's also efforts at humanist reform, especially as we get into the 1500s, the Renaissance is picking up speed. Um, there was a guy named Desiderius Erasmus. Has anybody ever heard of Erasmus? Erasmus is one of my favorites. His nickname was the Prince of the Humanists uh, for his uh, success with uh, literary criticism and textual criticism. Um, he worked on critical editions of things. So you collect all the manuscripts of a particular work and compare them to each other and try to figure out what the original reading was. And so if you have a Bible today, uh, it's benefited from these kinds of activities uh, so that we try to figure out what the oldest version of the different uh, biblical books or texts uh, were, and that's what we put in there. Um, so he was really the gran grandfather of that. Uh, he also wrote a book of satire called In Praise of Folly, and it's hilarious uh, if you ever are just looking for something funny but stimulating to read. Basically, he's talking about how great being foolish is, right? That's the tongue-in-cheek bit. But isn't it wonderful to be foolish? And look at uh, Carolyn. She's so great at being foolish. She does this, that, and the other thing, right? <laughs> or look at Ronnie. He does this, that, and the other thing. He's so great at being foolish. He worships foolishness, 
right? So just like that, it just works his way through. Princes, uh, kings, bishops, the pope, lawyers, uh, people who chase after business. Like the whole nine, just works his way through society, saying how great everybody is because they chase after foolishness, right? And he never, he never called anybody by name. So whenever anybody complained about it, he's like, well, I didn't say your name. Why are you thinking I'm talking about you? I didn't mean you, right? So he was real clever with how he did it. Um, and consequently, he never got uh, prosecuted or anything. It also helped that he was, you know, an uh, internationally famous scholar. Uh, so he never, you know, got punished or anything. At one point, they even offered to make him a cardinal. Uh, but he turned that down. He didn't want anything to do with it. Um, they were trying to co-opt him, you know, as one does. But he also had this uh, thing he called the philosophy of Christ. And his idea of the philosophy of Christ was that you read the New Testament especially, you read Jesus' teachings and all the moral teachings that are communicated there, and then you try to live that out, and that's what being a Christian is all about. And everybody should be able to read the Bible in their own language, he said, even women. <laughs> So, incredibly progressive for his time. We wish he might frame things a little differently today. Anyway, he actually survived. Uh, he died of natural causes, and they didn't burn him later uh, after the fact. So, he, he, he made it through life. But all of this, you know, these different attempts from different angles for different reasons to try to make changes to the late medieval church's status quo, right? And then, of course, you get Luther. Uh, Martin Luther, who was originally going to school to be a lawyer until he got caught out in a storm and freaked out and made a, an oath to Saint Anne. Do we know who Saint Anne was? Jesus' grandma. Saint Anne is Jesus' grandma. Also the patron saint of miners, and not miners in the sense of they can't buy alcohol, but miners in the sense of they dig in the ground, right? And Luther's family was in mining. Uh, his dad owned a number and operated a number of mines, so that's where their money came from. And uh, this would be the saint that Luther would pray to. So he prays to St. Anne, uh, save me, I will become a monk. He makes it through. It takes him a few weeks to decide whether or not he's actually going to follow through on this. But he finally does and becomes an Augustinian monk. Now a lot of times we get a picture of Martin Luther as, uh, and it's really the, the way that the Roman... Uh, propagandists depicted him as this rustic, uncultured, backcountry German, right, who doesn't, he's not civilized. But that's really not the case at all. Uh, he was as civilized as it was possible to be uh, in Germany at that time. He uh, was from a good uh, upcoming middle-class family. Uh, he went to uh, good universities. Uh, his Augustinian order recognized that he had talent. And by the time he was um, actually beginning the process of his criticizing of Rome, he was basically a bishop in his order. He oversaw 18 houses, 18 monastic houses. So we, we often think this one monk against everyone. No, he was kind of a big deal uh, in the German Augustinian order already at that time. And even uh, once he started his uh, criticism of the way things were, a number of Augustinian monks, you know, supported him. And a number of houses continued to support him along the way and ended up leaving uh, at some point along with him as well. He was trained in the theology of a guy named Gabriel Beale. And I've written the key phrase for that theology up there on the board in my very bad Latin handwriting. Facere quod in seest. 
Facere quodenseest. It means do what is in you. Uh, we have a colloquial version of this. It's called do your best and God will do the rest. All right, we've heard this. That's the basic idea. And um, in somebody like Beale's theology and late medieval theology, the idea was is you don't have to be perfect. You just have to do what you can, and God will help get you across the finish line, right? Luther's problem was he could never be sure with himself that he had done everything he could. And so he could never feel confident that he had triggered the trip to that wire where God would kick in and help with the rest, right? So that's where his doubts came in. So it was intended to be a comfort, because you could say, you know, somebody comes to you, they're, they're having a hard time in their spiritual life, you're like, don't worry, you just have to do what you can, right? But Luther's like, how do I know that I've done what I can, right? Why can't I do more? And so it freaked him out. And so he was looking for a different uh, way of uh, orienting his belief and practice that would kind of uh, help him through uh, that difficulty. So uh, then John Tetzel came to town selling indulgences, and Luther wasn't very happy about that. And he wrote his 95 theses to start a debate about indulgences. Uh, he did everything that he was supposed to do. He sent it to his Augustinian superiors. He sent it to the archbishop of the area who was supervising the sale of indulgences and coincidentally profiting greatly from it. Um, and that guy forwarded it straight to Rome because most of the money from Tetzel's indulgence selling was going to Rome to fund St. Peter's Basilica. It was being built at that time. Uh, and, you know, this was going to cut into the revenue, so it became a big deal. And that's why uh, it got handled the way that it got handled. He was finally excommunicated, uh, which me meant he was an outlaw officially in the Holy Roman Empire, which is roughly what we would call Germany today. Uh, if, any, if he had ever been caught out by his enemies, they could have killed him without legal consequence. Right? He was a non-entity. So he never left his prince's territory uh, very much after that. He stayed up there in Saxony. And after further study, he ended up um, disagreeing with a great deal of medieval faith and practice. He, uh, in, in a debate with Johann Eck at the city of Leipzig in 1519, Leip uh, Eck maneuvered him into agreeing with Jan Hus who had been burned as a heretic. And so Luther's like, yeah, that Hus guy kind of had some stuff right. And everybody's like, oh my goodness. Uh, but uh, that's just Luther for you. So um, he, he kind of identified himself in that line of attempts to reform the status quo. Really quickly about Luther's theology, and then we'll get into the confession itself. He emphasized that grace is a gift we cannot earn. So even more so than, you know, do your best and God will do the rest, it's you can't do anything. And the consequence of that is not, so don't even try. It's like, no, you can't do anything, so God will help you out, and that means you'll want to try, right? So just reorienting the logic there a little bit. You're not trying because you have to, to try to earn something. You're trying because you're thankful and you're showing your gratitude. So God intervenes uh, to give grace and unite God's people with Christ so that you can have a relationship there, and that relationship is transformative so that you learn to obey as you continue to live the Christian life. You get better at it, but your salvation never depends on how good you are at that. Uh, and then he also criticized the theology of the period for too much logical wrangling. Uh, and he thought, like Huss, like Wycliffe, that you needed to base things much more on Scripture. That said, 
he did a lot of his own uh, logical wrangling and uh, was very conversant with the medieval theology at the time. He'd studied it thoroughly, was a doctor in it. Um, and so a lot of the debates right now in Luther scholarship is, you know, which medievals was he reading and how did that influence the forms that his arguments took and so on. He also translated scripture into German. He was influenced by humanists uh, like Erasmus who thought that it should be available to be read in each language. So uh, in translating it into German, he really created the German language as we know it today. It was not a unified language prior to this. Um, so the, the idea that there's a standard German, what in previous centuries was called a high German, uh, was the result of Luther translating the Bible and everybody reading that form of German. Yeah? Uh, he was a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg. Yep, so his elector, uh, elector Frederick the Wise, was really good at stalling. And uh, he kept playing for time with the emperor, uh, which he could do because the emperor was fighting a Turkish incursion into modern-day Austria and needed all of his princes uh, to help fund that effort. And uh, Luther's uh, prince, Elector Frederick, was one of the nine princes who were most powerful and who picked the emperors. And so he was able to effectively stall for time. And he and then his son was able to stall for decades until the end of the 1540s. Yeah. But Luther just stayed in their territory as much as he could. So that's background, right? Uh, we're doing decently on time, I think. So let's look at the confession itself. So we went through chapters 1 through 5 last time. So we'll pick up in number 6 on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Who has uh, Galatians 4, 4 through 5 to read for us? I do. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Now concerning the but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. So when the fullness of time came, right? So we get that language here in the confession as well. And it's the way that the New Testament understand, tries to answer the question, why did the whole Jesus thing happen when it did? Not earlier, not later, right? And the whole phrase is just something like, well, it was ready now, right? You've got this, it's kind of a pregnancy metaphor, a fullness of time, uh, or else a gardening metaphor, something has ripened, right? But now was the time, for whatever reason, that it happened. And so we get that same language here, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, and so on. Now, um, see that bit there as that line continues, his eternal wisdom, the substance of his own glory. This is a really interesting connection um, between the two testaments, excuse me, that I always like to point out. So does somebody have Proverbs 8, some verses from Proverbs 8? I'm sorry. Two, like on the no, Proverbs. Proverbs. Not yours? <laughs> Nobody ended up with Proverbs 8? Did I forget to write down Proverbs 8? Well, That's entirely possible. Uh, I think maybe I did. 8, 1, yes I did. Okay, I'm going to read Proverbs 8, and then somebody else has John 1. Okay, so get ready. So this is Proverbs 8, 1 through 3, 22 and 23, and 26 through 27. 
Does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice? On top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates at the opening of the city, at the entrance of the doors, she cries out, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. So that's what wisdom says in Proverbs 8. Now John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What, what has come into being in him was life. Nope, that's good. So what we end up with uh, when we look at these is a lot of very similar language between wisdom in Proverbs 8, which coincidentally is personified as a woman, and the word in John 1, which is standing in for Jesus, right? And so a lot of ink has been spilled on somehow Greek philosophical notions uh, about word driving this first chapter of John when really he just knows his Hebrew Bible, right? And he's picking up this stuff about wisdom and translating it into word and upgrading it. So wisdom says that she was with God in the beginning and helped create everything. John 1 says all of that, but also the word was God, right? Makes an even closer identification. So I just love pointing out that connection um, with John 1 because lots of folks know John 1. Not everybody knows Proverbs 8. Right, it's kind of hiding in there. I don't know about you, Proverbs that never gets me very excited. Um, it's a hard, hard book to work through with any kind of constancy, but there's some good stuff in there. So, wisdom, word, God, all of that is here. And so in the Scots Confession, chapter 6, right in the middle of the section, uh, we find the word Emmanuel, which of course means God with us. And this is uh, taking up the prophecy from Isaiah 7 about the young woman conceiving and bearing a son and calling him Emmanuel and uh, applying it here in connection with Matthew 1, as does the New Testament. But all of this is a way of upholding a classic Christological theological point uh, that was made at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And we see a lot of Chalcedon in this chapter. The basic point is that, yes, you have this human being, we call him Jesus, and Christians are saying that this human being, we call him Jesus, is also the Word, the Son of God. Well, does that mean that there's actually two different personalities there, two different wills, two different minds, and they're just working together, or what? Right? Do you have the man and then the God, and somehow they're put together like uh, the two-by-fours you glue together to, together to put above your door if you're framing a house? Anybody ever seen those? kind of fun. Uh, is that how it works or is there some other kind of relation there? And what the Council of Chalcedon said is that there's only one subject so that everything that it means to be human that's there with Jesus, including mind and will and personality, is the, mi the human mind and will and personality of the Word, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. So there aren't two different personalities. There's one personality. How many of us have seen um, the movie Men in Black? 
There's a great scene in Men in Black where an alien, uh, you think it's an alien, but then you realize his face pops off and it's a giant robot and it's being driven by an alien. It's kind of like that, right? <laughs> the second person of the Trinity is driving the whole human Jesus thing. One subject, one driver, not two. So Chalcedon makes that point. And so we see some more of it here. Emmanuel, true God and true man. So everything pertaining to God and everything pertaining to being human there in Jesus. Two perfect natures united and joined in one person. And so this is the core of official ancient Christian doctrine of Christ. So just like with the Trinity, they signal to it and they play all the right notes and don't really dive into it too much. They're doing the same thing here. They're signaling, they're playing all the right notes using all the technical language, they're not elaborating, they're not doing anything particularly creative, but they're saying, you're not going to be able to get us on this bit, right? This isn't where the argument is. Uh, and so you see them rejecting a few heretics, Arius, Marcion, Eutyches, Nestorius. Uh, Arius said that Jesus was not God, but Jesus was the first and best thing that God ever made. Marcion, I'm not sure why he's here. <laughs> he said that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament, so I'm, that's playing in here somehow, but I'm not sure exactly what was in the Scots Confession's mind. Uh, Eutyches said that when you put the God and the human together in Jesus, you get a new third kind of thing. So that was ruled out. It's not a new third kind of thing, it's just both at the same time, if that makes sense. You've got to have a flexible mind for some of this stuff. Nestorius said that you never really get them put together in that way. It's just two working together. They're not actually one, they just act like it. So, ruling out all of those heretical options, they're saying, look, you're not going to blame us for being any of these kind of heretics, right? We're all on the same page. So that's what it's doing in chapter 6. Chapter 7, why the mediator had to be true God and true man. See how short that is? <laughs> Pretty unsatisfactory, right? <laughs> Big question. Little answer. <laughs> right? Well, they don't even give a simple answer. They just said, because God says. That's the answer, right? Look, uh, we acknowledge and confess that it happened because of the immutable decree of God on which everything depends, right? Just because God said. Luckily, in the next sections, they start explaining it a little more. <laughs> but I always think it's funny in this confession. Big question, super short answer, and let's move on, right? But then they're going to get into election a little bit more. And it's funny because this isn't even really that much about election. Um, so that's chapter 8. i got to flip my page here. So we're starting to get into the logic here uh, for why the mediator had to be true God and true man. So in 8 we get a piece of it, and then in 9 we get another piece of it. So a few lines in. For since the opposition between the justice of God and our sins was such, the opposition between the justice of God and our sins, right? So you've got this idea that God has a thing called justice, or God is just, and there's a problem with respect to human beings and how God can relate to human beings because God is this way, right? No flesh by itself could or might have attained unto God. So there's nothing humans could do about it, 
That's the short version for that sentence. So there's a problem. God is just. We are not. There's nothing we can do about it. So it behooved, right? <laughs> Let's not explain it. Let's just say that it fits. It behooves the Son of God to descend under, unto us and take himself a body of our body and become the mediator, etc. So, uh, again, not explaining why yet, but just kind of setting up the scene. But notice you've got the problem of God's justice, but then the Son of God comes to fix the problem. Presumably motivated by love, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that this happened, right? Uh, speaking, whenever I bring up that verse, have I said this all to you? What does the so mean in for God so loved the world? No, we've never talked about this together? Well, what do we normally think it means, maybe? How do we interpret that? Yeah, so much for God. So much love the world, right? Incorrect. <laughs> I'm sorry. God does love us very much. That part is true. It's just the wrong verse for it. Uh, it's in this way. For God loved... What's the word now I'm blanking? For God so loved the world, for God loved the world in this way that God sends God's Son. Not in some other way, in this way. Right? That's the force of that verse. Anyway, we're on this. Uh, so, you've got God's love and God's justice, and they seem to be up to different things. You notice that? God's justice says, nah, we can't be friends with those humans anymore. God's love says, eh, I think we should be. Right? And so you've got these two different things that God is. God is loving and God is just. And somehow you've got to find a way to make them work together so that God can be friends with humans again because of human sinning. It's just an interesting way to set it up. God's kind of like arguing with God's self. God's got a conflict within God's self that has to be negotiated. Right? And that's what sets up the whole logic here. So how do you make it so that God's justice can be put to rest so that God's love can prevail? And so to do that, you get the whole Emmanuel thing. And so as we continue to read, we discover that because God became human, uh, he was able to undergo the punishment of our transgressions and to present himself in the presence of his Father's judgment as in our stead, to suffer for our transgression and disobedience, and by death to overcome him that was the author of death. Beca but because the Godhead alone could not suffer death, and neither could manhood overcome death, he joined both together in one person. So, there's nothing humans can do about it. But he, the fix has to fix us, right? We're the problem, and we also can't fix the problem. So God has to fix the problem. But the trick is, how does God fix the problem that's us? So the solution is, God becomes us, fixes the problem, right? And so that's what the Incarnation's all about. God becomes human so that humans might become like God. That's a classic Christian phrase. God becomes human, like humans, so that humans might become like God. And so the way they work it out is through the idea of death, right? You take divine life, you put it in contact with sin and death, kind of burn that all away, and then human beings can now live with God forever. That makes sense? So there was this guy named Anselm of Canterbury. Has ever, anybody ever heard of Anselm? Uh, a high medieval thinker. He wrote a book with the same title, Why Did God Become a Human Being? 
And his, his answer was, he used a really futile way of looking at it. He says, all human beings own absolute uh, honor to God. They owe it, right? 100% of all our honor is devoted to God or should be. And sin is when we miss a payment, right? But the problem is we already owe all of it. So there's absolutely no way we can catch up on the payments. Because any honor that we're going to give God, we already owe. It's impossible for us to give extra honor. So we're stuck. Short. However many payments we missed. So Jesus comes, and Jesus not only makes all the payments as a human, but also is obedient even unto death. And because Jesus is also God, this death honoring God has an infinite value. And from the infinite value of that death, you can cover up all those other payments. Right? So that humans become united with Christ, have a different relationship with God now because the honor that Jesus shows in that voluntary death covers the honor that we owe. But he had to become human to make all the payments, and then he had to be God to generate the extra payment value. Right? So a lot of different times and places people have reflected on how this works uh, using whatever socioeconomic conditions they're in. He used the feudal system we see here in the Scots Confession, more of a judicial approach, more of a law kind of court sort of approach that was primary in the Reformation, right? It's all about punishment, right? Uh, and somebody else taking the punishment instead of you. So it's penal in that sense. Uh, but the same basic logic holds. There's something that humans have to supply, but it's impossible for them to do so. So God has to become a human in order to do it. So that's the answer to the question, why the mediator had to be true God and true man. Had to be true God in order to fix it. Had to be true man in order to apply the fix to the right place. Chapter 9. First line, it talks about a voluntary sacrifice unto the Father. That's what I was just talking about. Uh, where Jesus sacrifices Jesus' self, and because Jesus is God, it's an uh, infinitely valuable sacrifice. But it has to be voluntary, because if it's not voluntary, you don't get extra credit. Uh, if it's something that has to be done, it's just the normal honor, right? So it's a voluntary sacrifice. And then you get this bit about... Jesus being condemned in the presence of an earthly judge so that humans can be absolved before the judgment seat of God. All right? So you've kind of got this mirror of what's playing out on earth also playing out in heaven. So Jesus is being condemned so the rest of us cannot be. Condemned on earth, not condemned in heaven. And it even says that Jesus suffered the wrath of his Father which sinners had deserved. When was the last time we heard the word wrath in church? doesn't happen too much anymore with Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> yeah, he had a lot, of, a lot of wrath in his sermons. Um, in Reformed thinking, wrath is the form that love takes when it's met with resistance. So you think about it. If you hate somebody, it's not because you don't care about them at all, right? If you didn't care about them at all, you wouldn't muster up the energy to hate them, right? You can only hate people that you have some kind of connection with. Just like you can only love people 
that you have some kind of connection with. They're two sides of the same coin. There's a relationship there. The relationship is either positive or negative, right? So you apply that to how God relates to human beings, and it's not that God's wrath is punishing. It's not that God's wrath is born out of hatred or anger. It's that it's God's love met with human sin so that it has to destroy the sin. That's just what God's love does, right? So Jesus had to face that insofar as Jesus is symbolically taking on all of the sin and standing in the place of all of the sin so that God's love has to turn to this kind of destructive force to remove all that. Was that the final word? No, right? Because after cross there comes resurrection, right? So love's the final word. Wrath is a moment in the process of love whereby everything that would get in the way of the relationship has to be destroyed. Yeah? From this whole process, Jesus has to descend into hell. My question is, why is that such a controversial thing? And if some of the Apostle Creed, you know, we don't say that, some we do. What's the deal? That's chapter 10. <laughs> at the end of chapter 9 notice no other sacrifice for sin this is a running argument with the Catholicism at that time and there's lots of um, more and less sophisticated ways that this got expressed but there was in late medieval uh, Catholic uh, a thought the idea that the mass was a sacrifice of some kind right and the reformers were not happy with this because they thought it undermined Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. So that's an extended argument that's still going on. Um, it, we're a lot nicer about it today. Nobody's getting burned at stakes and whatnot. Uh, but we're still arguing about that. And um, the Scots Confession is lifting it up here and saying that, you know, that whole mass business where you think you're sacrificing Christ again, uh, which is how they interpreted it, um, that's not right. So this is a place where they're differentiating themselves. So unlike with the Christology and the Trinity where they're saying we're all on the same page, here they're very much saying, no, we're, we're right and you're wrong and this is how it should be, right? And then the resurrection, okay. Uh, descended into hell, as you noted. It's in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, it's not in the Nicene, is it in the Nicene Creed? It's not in the Nicene Creed. It's in the Apostles' Creed, creed. yep. Um, Calvin was not a fan of that phrase. Um, and I keep trying to figure out why. Who has the first Peter passage? Okay. a weird set of verses. Yeah. You find these from time to time. And um, I like when we find them because it reminds us that this thing is 2,000 years old. Um, there's some, yeah, there's some really, really fun ones. Um, this one, though, Calvin was already wrestling with. I went and looked up his commentary one time. And he did not like this idea of this mythological picture of Jesus like going down into hell and preaching. Um, he thought it undermined the importance of faith in your own lifetime. 
to think that maybe you had another shot at it. So uh, he really resisted that. And the way he interpreted the line about Jesus' descent into hell in the creed was to say that this is the experience of divine wrath. When Jesus experienced God's wrath upon him and had this separation from God, that was the psychological, spiritual experience of hell. So he didn't have to go to some pseudo-mythological you know, location, right? He had the experience. So hell, in traditional theology, is defined as the complete absence and separation from God, which is itself kind of illogical because traditional theology also says that if you're 100% separated from God, you cease to exist. So it's kind of tricky. Uh, but <laughs> that's the idea. And so Calvin's saying, well, that's what Jesus experiences on the cross. He has that experience of hell there so that nobody else who believes ever has to. Right? Did John Milton mess this all up? Milton, yeah. Because, yeah, he did. You know, he put so much emphasis on that, describing hell, and, you know, and it somehow that stuck in everybody's mind all yeah. the way down from whenever he was. It was such a powerful depiction that it's kind of defined the terms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like uh, Dante. Right, we're at the, the lowest circle of hell is, is freezing cold. <laughs> and uh, you get Satan as the giant worm and whatnot. Who has 1 Corinthians 15? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. So from the descent into hell to the resurrection in this chapter. And in each of these cases, um, the Scots Confession is taking a very traditional line. Uh, We don't get Calvin's word. I mean, Knox knew Calvin personally and in writing. um, And he's not taking the same line in the Scots Confession. They're just giving us a very traditional picture of it descending into hell, of resurrection, assuming that it's bodily, assuming that it's going to be universal in some way, right? And really, it borders on resuscitation. Um, so look at the end of the chapter. By the, why they know that it's true that Christ rose again, uh, by the senses and judgments of his apostles and of others who had conversation and did eat and drink with him after his resurrection. So we all are familiar with those stories. But notice it's pointing out only the really normal things in those stories, right? What about the bit, the bit about um, him telling him to throw the net on the other side, which should make absolutely no difference to fishing, but then it was giantly full, right? right. What about the appearing in the middle of a crowded room with closed doors and windows, right? What about being on the road to Emmaus and then suddenly in Jerusalem the next, the next you know, minute or two, right? So all the weird things... <laughs> So they're focusing so much on the continuity between the, pre, the, the pre-death Jesus and the resurrected Jesus that they're kind of doing away with the oddities of it and the ways that it doesn't match expectations and the way that those stories are trying to signal that there's a new thing happening here, right? And they're just turning it into somehow he's resuscitated and just normal again. <laughs> So in their, in their haste, let's say, to try to present a traditional picture, they're only presenting really one side of the picture, the side that you know, underscores the sameness of the situation rather than the side that underscores the weirdness and the newness and the difference. 
of the situation. And we made it through, but we went over. So we've got just a few minutes to grab more coffee and donuts and things and get into here, <laughs> Ronnie's sermon. So, uh, but we're still on pace. And I will see you all next week. You've been listening to the McCracken Cast. I am, and hopefully will remain, Dr. Travis McMacken. I do all the production work myself, in case you couldn't tell. But the music is by my son, Connor. Until next time... Think interesting thoughts.